The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading is from Mark 11, 1 through 10. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Heather. You may be seated. Here's a question for you. Do you have authority? Does anybody in here have any authority at all? Which one of you has the most authority of anybody in the room? And which, of, which has the least authority? Oh, man, we cannot seem to make things go like we want them to go because we lack authority and often the things we want authority the most in. All the parents in here have authority, but you notice at some age, I'm not sure when it was, it could have been one, two, or three, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I don't have as much authority as I thought I did. I used to be a school teacher, and we were taught, you know, when you enter that classroom, you've got authority. Of course, it's teenagers, and we didn't have any authority at all. I certainly couldn't make them be what I wanted them to be. Captain Tom Hugerich used to be in a submarine, captaining a submarine. He could tell that submarine to go wherever it wanted to. It was nuclear armed, but he couldn't fire off one of those nuclear missiles unless he got somebody higher than him, a higher authority like the commander-in-chief to tell him what he could do on that. Officers Donovan and Rob have authority. We know that because they have a badge and a gun. But we want to know, how come you two can't stop crime in Wake County? But they can't. All they can do is respond to crime. They can't make anybody do the right thing. Assistant District Attorney Joe Ellis has got authority in in the Harnett County judicial system, but no matter what he does, just or unjust, competent or not, it's always a judge above him that makes the final decision. Tom Miners is is our church meteorologist, which is a pretty cool job. He does a fantastic job of predicting the weather, and it's very, very reliable. But what we really want from Tom is to change the weather. But he doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the authority to do that. So can any of you absolutely predict the future this week? You've got some authority. You maybe kind of know what's going to happen, but no ability to do that perfectly. Can you make people do what's right? And maybe most importantly, and this goes for your own children or anybody else, can you change people's hearts? No. In Mark 11, you're going to see a lot of fulfillment of prophecy. This will strengthen your confidence that when God is at work, he's completing a preordained plan. Only God has the authority to declare ahead of time what will happen 
and then make it happen perfectly. You also see a lot of failure, particularly in Israel's religious leadership in this chapter. Even human failure is ordained by God. Can you believe that? But only God has the authority to use human failure to achieve his plans. And you'll see a call to disciples to have faith in this. In fact, Jesus will call his disciples to have faith and to pray and to forgive. Does Jesus have authority to tell us to do this? Have faith in God. Forgive others. Does he have the authority? Yes, he does. So we're going to see fulfillment, failure, and a call to faith in this chapter. In the whole chapter, we're witnessing Jesus' authority to do away with the old covenant. Can you believe that? And begin the new covenant as he lays down his life by his own plan, by his own authority. The chapter begins with a very plain description of how Jesus got this young donkey, this young unridden donkey. The details are fascinating just because they're there. He, he enters into Jerusalem and he tells two disciples, just two of them, now you go into the city right here. And as you enter the city, there'll be a donkey tied. It's a very young one, never been ridden before. It'll be tied on the street. You get it. When the owner of that donkey's servants ask you what you're doing, you're to tell them, well, the master, our Lord, needs it. And then he'll return it when he's done. Why these details? Because Jesus is teaching that all of the events of his rejection arrest and crucifixion are about to happen and they're totally planned by him. By the way, just so you know, this, this story about a donkey is, is one of uh, a bunch of stories about donkeys that just simply do the right thing. They obey God, which is a great contrast to sometimes to Jesus' disciples who have a lot of trouble figuring out whether they really want to obey God or not. But these details show Jesus completely and calmly in charge of what is going to happen in the next days, including his own death. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. The prophet Zechariah predicted this in 520 B.C. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A donkey? Where's the white stallion? Where's lightning and thunder? Sometimes don't you think that God's almost just trying to make it hard for belief that Jesus is Messiah? I, if this guy is who we say he is, and I think I know what the Messiah is going to look like and how he's going to come. Shouldn't there be something more? Jesus just rides on a donkey. This Jesus, this lowly carpenter from Nazareth. No, no, this gentle, humble Jesus is God in lowly human flesh. His power is shown in his authority to preordain his rejection, his suffering, and his temporary defeat on the cross. Without the grace of God, you guys, no one would accept Jesus. It's only the hard-hearted, the self-righteous, and the prideful who cannot accept this Jesus who comes lowly and gently riding on a donkey. But then why rejoice? What is victorious about this, as the the prophet says? Well, this is going to come on the third day. 
Defeat first, suffering first, but then victory on the third day. And in completion of all of God has promised the next time Messiah comes. Verse 9 says this, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna means something like, please save us now. It's just a part of being a child of Israel to live in a constant anticipation of the coming of Messiah and and to always be longing for victory over all the enemies. And understand that everyone expects Messiah to be crowned king in Jerusalem. So there's always that expectation that when I make my pilgrimage to Jerusalem, maybe I'll just coincidentally be there at the same time that Messiah is entering. So it's easy to get caught up in all of the celebration and how much easier it would to be to have been one of those who coincidentally is riding in with Jesus of Nazareth. I've heard of him before. I saw him in Galilee. He healed my friend or my, my, my family member. And, oh, this is really great. I love that guy. And I'm marching in there with him. So it's a lot of celebration. Hosanna, Lord, save me. Listen, this is not just some sort of a prayer and fulfillment of prophecy. This is a prayer for all of us to pray. And not just as a song in some children's Sunday school department. Lord, save me. I pray that all the time. Lord, save me. It's not because I am doubtful of God's salvation, but because it's my expression of I want to be saved, and I want to be saved every day. And tomorrow I shall pray that prayer. And tomorrow he will save me, and he will keep saving me. And I can't see really that in all of eternity I would stop saying that. Not because the issue is unresolved, but because I want to be saved and he wants to save me and he will keep on saving me. So maybe all day of every day of eternity, I will sing Hosanna. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 118.25. Let me show you Psalm 118 verses 19 through 26. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord the righteous shall enter into it. You guys, Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the gate of righteousness. And to be enter into it is to get his righteousness. It's, it's a narrow gate, Matthew says in chapter seven of his gospel. It's not enough room for the obese with pride or the fat with self-righteousness to get through that narrow gate. You must release all of that and enter in it. And Jesus, as the gate of righteousness, then after you have entered it, you receive his righteousness. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation, the psalmist says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. What's, what's the Lord's doing? That the stone would be rejected preordained and planned and it happened, but that stone becomes the cornerstone. Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I always show this verse in my top 10 verses that are taken out of context by by well-meaning Christians. It's usually maybe placard on a Sunday school wall or somewhere in church because apparently a lot of us don't really want to be there on Sunday. So we have to say, this is the day. Sunday's the day. It'll come again in seven days, but it's not talking about Sunday at all. It's talking about the day of Messiah. That one single day anticipated has come in Jesus Messiah coming on this earth. 
to be our Savior. And yet the day of Messiah continues on until his second coming. That day has arrived and we rejoice. So he says in verse 25 of, of Matthew 118, or Psalm 118, save us, we pray, or Hosanna. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Fulfillment means that Jesus has the authority to cause the past prophecies to become the present reality. What he has, was predicted in the past, Jesus can make happen in the present. And that means that what he promises us in our present, he can fulfill in the future. So, so in other words, Jesus' authority gives us confidence. It's him who is making these promises so they will come to pass. We have to admit there's failure here. It seems that the idea of Jesus is much more popular than the real Jesus, the actual Jesus. The Jews of Jerusalem don't want a Jesus that is not affirmed by their religious heroes. They, they want to hear that from their heroes, the Jewish leaders. The Jews of Jerusalem don't want a Jesus that um, doesn't come with, with an insurrection against Rome, and Jesus didn't. They don't want a Jesus that loves Gentiles. They don't want a Jesus who can be crucified. They don't want a, a Jesus who can be humiliated and become a dead Messiah. Matthew 27 records at Jesus' crucifixion. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, why don't you? If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, crowds walked with Jesus into the city and cried, God, please save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. On the cross, crowds passed by Jesus and insulted him. It's the same today. People wanted Jesus of their own making. They wanted Jesus that condemns others, but definitely not themselves. They wanted Jesus who's the superhero of justice. They wanted Jesus the problem solver, but not the one who commands absolute allegiance. People want a Jesus of comfort, but not a Jesus of the cross, right? Verse 12 says, the next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Not a big fan of figs, although I've eaten fig newtons in the past. I take it that's where the figs are, that's what a fig newton is, figs, actual figs. Apparently, that particular plant kind of has two fruitings. In the early spring, right before the leaves start to pop out, these little fruits, they're much, much smaller than the big sweet figs. They're called knops, K-N-O-P-S. Just little kind of unripe figs that can be like for pilgrims or poor people passing by. You can stop by and just pull those off. They're not really, really sweet, but they're edible. Jesus sees from a distance the fig tree and it's got leaves on it. Well, it's got to have those little knops on it to get maybe just a little bit of a snack, but they're not there. In a prophecy of judgment, Jeremiah 8.13 says this, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. 
There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. In Hosea 2.12, idolatrous Israel claims that the grapevines and fig trees are, quote, my wages, which my lovers have given me. But God says, I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. Jesus curses the fig tree because what it ought to have produced, it did not. The fig tree, you know what it is? It's a liar. The fig tree is a hypocrite, pretending to have fruit when it does not. Are you a fig tree without fruit? Do you have leaves but no figs? If the Spirit is within you, can people see the fruit of the Spirit? I ask you these questions, but I've already asked them of myself. And I ask them of myself a lot because I'm terrified about how it may look to you about the way that I am when in fact maybe fruit is missing. It's a, it's a frightening thought. Jesus gives an acted out parable just to the disciples so he can prepare them for the judgment that is coming on Israel. Just days away from his crucifixion, he's still teaching the disciples about how they must relate to their old securities. I have security in my religion and my my famous capital city and the way we do things. And Jesus says, it's a fig tree without figs. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves. Look at Isaiah 56, 7 through 8 with me. I will bring foreigners to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. The outermost area of the temple is called the court of the Gentiles. It's about 35 acres in size. And the only place the Gentiles and foreigners and the uncircumcised can come and worship God and pray And yet there was no room for them with all of the animals and the money exchangers and people. This was the failure of Israel's leadership and the the whole purpose of the temple. Did you notice the ominous verse 11? Look in your Bible. After Jesus has entered the city, he walks into the temple area. Mark says that he looks around at everything. What's he doing? Why does Mark record that? What is Jesus doing by looking around the courtyard at everything? He is looking over his property. He's looking over what he owns. He's looking over the thing that is the purpose to point to him, and it has failed. But he has the authority to do whatever he wants with the temple. And so it begins let me just ask you this. Now, who can destroy a building? 
the one who has authority over it, right? What are three reasons to destroy a building? Well, one thing, it could just be too small, and that happens all the time. If you think your house is too small, you have the authority to add on to it. I don't have any authority to tell you what to do about that. It's your house. You can build another room. You can expand the kitchen. You can turn the garage into a room, or you could just plow it over and start over again. It's your house. You have authority to do that. 35 acres may be enough room for any Gentile who is able to make the pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. But here's the thing. What the Jews of Jesus' time could never envision is that there would be hundreds of millions of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus' Messiah. And there would never be enough room in a temple area. In fact, only the earth can handle all of those who are in the kingdom of God. They didn't think that way. So you can destroy something that's too small for the kingdom of God when it's time to expand. You can destroy a building if it's unsafe. Certainly, you probably should. The foundation's giving way. Walls are cracking. you got way too many termites. Maybe there's dangerous wiring or something. Is it safe to be in a system that preaches righteousness is earned by keeping the law? Especially since no one can keep the law. Is it safe to be in a place where traditions have replaced the authority of God's word? Let's not worry about the Bible. Let's just keep doing what we've always been told we're supposed to be doing. That's our tradition. Forget about the Bible. Is it safe to be in a place where patriotism and national identity are more important than being a servant of the true king? Yeah, it is possible to be in a place that's not safe with false doctrine or doctrine that is strayed from what the Bible has said about the way we live. Well, here's the third reason you may destroy a building because it's just simply been replaced by a better building. And that happens all the time too. Why keep an old building around when it's obsolete? How is the temple obsolete? Because Jesus is the temple and he has come. He is the place where God and sinner are reconciled. He's the place. He's the final sacrifice for all sins. Jesus is the law keeper that keeps the law for all of us. And if you are in Christ, then Jesus has replaced the old version of you with a newer and better version. And he has the authority to do that. And in Christ, you're the temple with him. We don't need that building. You're the temple. And you're a holy priest unto him as a believer. But Jesus has the authority to replace the old with the new. And that was a difficult thing to learn. The reaction is predictable. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. So whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Now, early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered, ah, yeah, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. It's so easy to forget the context of where Jesus is when he says this and what he's saying. This mountain, he says. Is he looking at the mount? that the temple and really all of Jerusalem is on? This mountain, if you believe, can be cast into the sea? 
Is it the Mount of Olives right nearby? Is the sea the Dead Sea that could also be seen visible? The last three years of the disciples' lives have been glorious and frightening and strange and perplexing. They're trying to believe with all their hearts that the kingdom of God really has come in Jesus. As they stand near Jerusalem, that old, beloved city, they may think, they may think that this city and their relationship with Judaism, with all of its predictable rules and traditions, maybe they think it will last forever. But Jesus indicates that to accept him is to have the focus of your life and your faith and your destiny forever changed. You can no longer look to the temple and the mountain that it's on anymore. You must now look forever at Jesus alone, the object of the temple. So acted out parable and teaching after teaching slowly convinces the disciples that the Old is being replaced by the new. So then he says, Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. You and I, all of us, must begin to really pray something that we've learned from childhood. But I mean, really pray it and mean it with faith. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a wall plaque. It's not a poster. It's not something to memorize. It's something to really pray and understand and believe with hearts of faith. The spirit of this prayer will always be answered. The prayer that will always be answered is, may your will be done. May your kingdom come and be done here. To pray the point of this prayer is to believe that you already have it while you wait to get it. Like the kingdom has come already in Jesus and the rest, of it's, the rest of it's not that far away. It's just it's just on the other side of that door. That's how close it is. As eyewitnesses to all that the, Jesus has, has experienced in his opposition, they know, the disciples know that more opposition is to come. They don't even know how bad it's going to get in just the next couple of days. But Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. With the opposition that's going to come, they'll have to learn forgiveness. With what they're going to see happen to Jesus, they'll have to learn forgiveness. What they're going to experience as disciples the rest of their life. They'll have to remember that they entered the kingdom of God, this glorious kingdom where God's will is done. They entered it through the salvation that comes when God forgives you. Remember that, he says, and let that be the way you live out the kingdom life, and you're going to have plenty of opportunity to forgive others, even your worst enemies. And you're going to see your own Lord Jesus on the cross forgive those right in front of everybody who have killed him. You see, the kingdom of God is not like any other kingdom. It's a kingdom of grace and forgiveness, and they must not forget that while they pray. May your will be done. Finally, verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question, then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? 
Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that Jesus was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So there comes another challenge. We're used to challenges from the Pharisees. This isn't the Pharisees. This is an elite group headquartered in Jerusalem. It's the Sanhedrin, the governing body that governed the temple. Basically, their real value was basically keeping Rome out of Jewish business. They basically said, Caesar, we, if you will leave us alone, yes, we'll pay some taxes, but if you'll just basically leave us alone, we'll keep Jerusalem under our wraps. We'll keep it calm. You have to remember something about Jerusalem. It's basically a, a fireworks factory that's guarded by pyromaniacs. It's always about to explode in some sort of a way. So, so the Sanhedrin kind of kept things you know, down and, and calm so it, uh, Rome wouldn't get too involved. But anything that can get Jesus removed or arrested or killed was going to please these chief priests because he went after, Jesus went after their main goal, the temple. They are aware that Jesus has done a stunning visual condemnation of the business going on in the court of Gentiles. But the act looks so provocative that they hope that maybe, maybe at least some zealous Israelite will come over there and kill Jesus or if need be, the Roman authorities will get involved and you can just get rid of Jesus, get him removed, arrested, killed. That will please them. But Jesus wisely puts on the, them on the horns of a dilemma, and they know it. John the Baptist was like no other prophet they had ever seen or heard or read. John said, John said, and you have to go back to Joshua's first sermon, chapter 1. John said, it is Jesus who fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah. It's Jesus who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At Jesus' baptism by John, it was heard from God, this is my son in whom I am very well pleased. What are you going to do with John the Baptist's undeniable testimony? No answer. Here's here's the seed of the sower that falls on the pathway. It doesn't sprout at all. Birds just come and snatch it away immediately. And so this chapter ends. Redeemer, Jesus has authority. He has already shown in our preaching that he has authority over demons, disease, and death. He has authority over the universe, by the way, because why? Because he created it. He brought it into existence. He can make it disappear if he wants to. Paul said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, all will be changed. Jesus has the authority to do that as he created the universe, and it will happen. He has authority over you because he created you. You have to ponder that again afresh this week. That means what happens to you is ordained by God, and he has every right to do it. Whatever happens this week, he has authority over you. He created you, and he saved you. He has authority over the church, that is, all saved people of all time, because he purchased the church with his blood. What does this mean? Well, Jesus has walked into the temple and has declared the failure of Israel, the temple, the leaders, and is just the beginning. Hang on for the next several sermons in the series. Three things I want you to see as we uh, close. Jesus has authority to pronounce failure. 
When do I have authority to announce the failure of something? Well, I can't just walk into your house and just like walk through the front door and fold my arms and look at everything like, this house is a total failure. Who am I to do that? I don't, that's not my job. I can't have the authority to do that. When, when I'm a farmer and expect fruit, but don't get it, I can declare that crop is a failure. When I design something for a purpose and it does not perform, I say, well, that, that's failed. When I expect obedience and get disobedience or negligence, I can say that's a failure. I'm not a failure because I cannot bake bread or build a house. I'm not a failure because I'm not a baker and I'm not a builder. I'll tell you what I am, though. I'm a husband, the pastor, the church member, and a neighbor, and a citizen. I'm a Christ follower. And so I could be declared a failure at those. It's real. So therefore, we, we align our ideas of success to his. God is the one that gets to tell us what success and failure is. God's expectations for marriage and parenting and money and church commitment, they're clear. They're not ambiguous. They're clear. And I have everything I need to be a success in that. God hasn't told me I need to be a success in something and said that, but I'm not giving you any help. I'm not equipping you in any way. He has fully equipped me. I have everything for godliness and life in Christ Jesus. I've got it. So you see, so we need to think about, about God's measure of success and failure, especially as it's compared to the world, where the world might say, well, you're successful. You're successful. I've seen your house. I've seen, I know how much money you make. I mean, that's success. I don't think so. Secondly, Jesus has the authority to fulfill all things. When it feels like that's never going to happen, don't forget that. He, he who has begun a good work and you will complete it. As far as God's perspective is concerned, if you're saved, you may as well already be in the new heaven and new earth. I know that seems so distant to us, but I want you to think again. The new heaven and new earth, the second coming of Christ. When, when I say that it's on the other side of that door, I don't mean that he's coming back tomorrow. I mean it's that close. Jesus doesn't have to travel far to get here. Think that way. Um, if you're saved, you might as well already begin to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of God. Do that. And, but, but, but what about the justice that we're looking for? As far as the kid who bullies your daughter or the boss who lies to you or the unjust judge or the president of Russia, their judgment is already at the door too. You say, we've been waiting for so long. Let me just tell you this, that the judgment against ungodly people is just right there. It's just right there. It's not a long ways off. So we maintain our hope for complete success of God's kingdom. And we gather together. We encourage each other to say, like, the, the best is yet to come. Hang on, be patient. Wait, hopefully, stay faithful to the end. And thirdly, lastly, Jesus has authority to demand faith. I mean, he's the one, God is the one who gave you your saving faith. He's the one who has given us the record of his word, the Bible, and every display of power and faithfulness and patience and mercy, it's all right there. So having 
had that, seen that, experienced that, he has every right to demand faith from you, that you believe him. He has absolutely the authority to demand that we trust him to complete his work and, that, and we pray that he will have his will done while almost at, simultaneously saying it is done. That's our faith. This business of praying for the will of God to be done will be answered. We must pray in faith. We must have this confidence. And it is commanded by our commander-in-chief who has the authority to say, now listen, you all, you have faith. Do it. Pray. I'm going to end with a question that Jesus is going to ask us. I'm going to end this way. It's from Luke 18. Just listen to this. Jesus told the parable, disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but Afterwards, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now listen, you guys, this is a parable of contrast. God is not like the unjust judge. He's the exact opposite. He is the righteous judge who is also your father and he wants you to continue to pray and not lose faith. And and this is what Jesus ends with. And and will not God give justice to his elect to cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's Jesus' question for us. Let's pray. So, Father, we are learning and need to relearn and ask for your help to understand your authority over all things. And so we look at your journey to the cross as totally preordained and planned, and you followed through on that. And then you will follow through on everything that you have promised us. But our faith is a bit weak, We need help in praying for the will of God to be done on earth that is is in heaven, to believe that, to act on that, to trust you fully. In our weakness, I cry out to you for help for that. And I pray for those who have entered into the building this morning who are still not trusting the God of the universe who calls them to repent and believe in Jesus. I pray for them to do that today before it's too late. This request to you, is in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.